Are you looking to build resilience and increase your capacity to handle stress? Do you ever wonder what it means to be enlightened and how that might impact your life? Maybe not in the positive ways you think. Are you ever stressed out by the constant chase to live a more enlightened, high vibration life? Welcome back to the We Are Already Free podcast, where we inspire down-to-earth seekers and free people to live their truth and be the change by focusing on what they actually can control. In this episode, I share a deep, vulnerable, inspiring conversation with Scott Carney, author of The Enlightenment Trap, What Doesn't Kill Us, and so many other books. And in this episode, we explore the above questions and many more. Scott is a New York Times best-selling author and anthropologist. He was the first journalist to write about Wim Hof and one of the first people to learn the Wim Hof method. His books, What Doesn't Kill Us and The Wedge, make the case for how environmental training and exposure are as fundamental to human health as diet and exercise. In this episode, Scott shares profound reflections on the concept of resilience and how it can help you create space between your natural reactions to stress and how you actually want to respond. The interplay between consciousness and the body and how mindfulness practices like breathwork and ice baths can help you change your physiology. Near the end of the episode, Scott shares his thoughts on the dangers of gurus and the importance of being able to receive feedback from others. Listen all the way to the end to hear his unique perspective and insights on this topic. He also shares a story I'd never heard before about the Buddha's shocking mistake. It's a dark and murderous side to the meditation practices that the Buddha first introduced. As always, this is only scratching the surface. We also cover the hero's journey, the middle way, Wim Hof, and so much more as always. If you're looking to expand your perspectives on these topics and more and learn how they can impact your own life, this episode is for you. As I said in the beginning, this is a very vulnerable episode. Scott talks openly about death and a very traumatic experience which shaped his life. I honor the life of Emily O'Connor and thank Scott for being willing to share so openly. I believe this is one of the most important episodes I've ever recorded. I have full body goosebumps even now as I'm saying that. If you feel this resonance, then listen on. Please do reach out if this episode brings up challenging emotions for you. You can chat with me directly by visiting the show notes, as well as find links to Scott's books and many of the things we discussed in this episode. All of that is available at alreadyfree.me forward slash 27. That's just the numbers 27. So for now, without further ado, thank you for your support. Thank you for making this podcast possible. This is a community-supported podcast. Thank you for being a part of it. Um, please enjoy this uninterrupted episode. Okay, fuck it. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm diving in. It's like an ice bath. Like enough standing on the yeah. edge thinking about this. Rad. So so interestingly enough, I've, in you sent me a few links before of like things that you are kind of alive for you or that would be interesting to to maybe cover. And I didn't remember this. I had forgotten, but I heard you, I guess, on another podcast years ago. It must have been, I don't know how many years ago, but where you were chatting about the story of the woman you call Emily O'Connor. And I remember when I heard that story, it really shook me, man. Like it, it was a deep right. look into 
this whole story or this idea of enlightenment and the fact that mm -hmm. as Westerners, we have certain ideas about what that means. So I know it's quite a long story. So I, I kind of want to almost share the, the full story in, in, in the show notes so people can go and get it there. Mm -hmm. But if you're open right. to, to just sharing a kind of summarized version of, of what that process sure. or that experience was for you and, and how that led you to, to some of the things that you, you think now about enlightenment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a great, place to start this entire conversation. So thank you for, 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 you know, queuing it up like that. The, for me, the, uh, almost my entire career starts in 2006, um, right after I dropped out of a PhD program in anthropology and was like trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I was like 26, 27 years old. And I took a job leading an abroad program in North India, you know, taking, um, you know, 18 to 23 year old students um, through the holy sites in North India. And I had lived in India for three years at that point. I speak Hindi. So, you know, I, I, I'm very just good with traveling around India. Uh, and, you know, we're, we, we go to Varanasi, we go to um, Bodh Gaya. And then I have this student who is amazing student. Her name's Emily O'Connor. And we're, we're doing the silent meditation. So this is sort of the, the Lam Rim Tibetan style mantra based stuff. And, I can't take the silence. Like silence is really hard for me. I have some good meditations. I have some sort of mediocre meditations. I'm like, I'm done. And, and meanwhile, there's also, I, I learned some terrorist attacks that happened very uh, close to where I was, was and, and somebody I knew was caught in a blast. So it was like a really tough time for me personally as the, as the director trying to keep students safe. And meanwhile, the, the, the nun who's teaching this program is talking about bliss and enlightenment and nirvana, all these like really awesome concepts. Right. And, you know, my student, Emily O'Connor was just into it. And, you know, we're going to speed through this story very quickly at the end of the program. You know, there's another sort of catastrophe that we have to deal with. There's a, a train derailment and I'm trying to get to go to Dharamsala and get all these kids on the train and it's a it's a big mess and we miss our train and we go back to the the meditation center which is the root institute in bodh gaya um, we dodge some calls about bandits in the area i mean it's sort of a tense time the students don't know about most of that stuff and at the in the evening you know the kids who have been silent for 7 days all want to talk but emily sits in a corner and just writes in her journal and writes in her journal and writes in her journal i go to bed and then at about, I believe, two in the morning, she climbs up to the roof of the retreat center and jumps off to her death. Um, she has wrapped a, a scarf around her face and I and her, her body lands about 10 feet from where I am sleeping. And so I wake up a, a couple hours later when someone comes across her body and, you know, my world is completely blown apart. And, you know, over the next several days, uh, my job sort of transfers from being like a tour guide, essentially, to someone who's bringing a corpse back to the United States and, you know, conducting an investigation into what happened. You know, she left her journal open for people to read, like in a very ostentatious place because she wanted people to read it. Uh, and uh, and I read it. And the the the. I mean, it's so hard for me to talk about this. Like I get emotional sometimes, yeah. but so it starts as like, she's this really 
driven, awesome type A stu- student of, of yoga and meditation. She's having, you know, India's crazy. There's cows, whatever, you know, no pretty normal experiences. And then it descends the day we get into the meditation retreat into statements along the lines of, you know, now that I've sat for a meditation, I realize that all of the, the, ma- the Buddhist masters of the past are in me. I know all of these texts. I am on the cusp of enlightenment and all I need to do is leave my body and then I will be a bodhisattva. And the last words are, I am a bodhisattva. And the, the journal is about 40 pages long. So this is the, the very, you know, truncated uh, version. But essentially she took her life, not because she was depressed, because she was you know, having trouble with these meditations, she took her life because she was so enraptured by the teachings and and what was happening in her meditations that she wanted to stay in that moment of perfect bliss. And her way out was to take her own life. And this set me off on my entire career in two parallel paths. One path as, a, you know, I'm an investigative journalist and I, I was literally seeing a person go from live and, and vibrant to, and, and I know this, this sounds a little dark, but essentially meat, right? That is decaying in 102 degrees. And I am suddenly responsible for, for a body. Meanwhile, people want pieces of her body, literally, like, you know, there's parts of her brain and liver and kidneys that are going for police investigations. There's insurance companies. I mean, there's just a lot of like stuff that happens after you die that you do not think about. And I was the custodian sort of in charge of that. And this led me down a six-year research into the material materiality of the body. That's my book, The Red Market. It's about organ trafficking. And I go off to investigate organ crimes, you know, stolen kidneys, stolen skeletons, surrogate pregnancies, like a lot of like dark stuff with the body. But at the same time I'm doing that, my mind is reeling. I'm trying to figure out what was going through her mind. Like, what is it about these meditative techniques that can pretend that I love right? What is it that could potentially go so terribly wrong? And so I spent also, while I was doing that organ trafficking research, I was also meeting with high lamas. You know, there's a Tibetan monastery outside of Varanasi in a, in a place called Sarnath. I was going there. I was going to Varana- to Dharamsala, speaking with some advisors of the Dalai Lama. And I'm asking, well, was she enlightened? Like, Was she a bodhisattva? Like, what is it about this tradition that's there? And, and they more or less say, no, she wasn't. Like, she she has this you know, sort of like Westerners in particular, they say, have this problem where we get so excited about these meditative techniques, right? Where, you know, we come from America and we look to the East and we maybe have a Christian background and, uh, you know, we believe in heaven and we also believe in the Protestant work ethic and the spirit of capitalism. You know, you can just work hard and you can achieve great things. And when that gets applied to meditative experiences, Sometimes when you're, you know, you're sitting there and time just passes in an instant and you feel awesome and you're like, oh my God, I'm realizing such great things. You can start to think that you are special, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. not to, you know, you are Luke Skywalker discovering the force. You are, (laughs) you know, we we have all these heroes who do this in our, in our media. And I, I think that, that we as Westerners can get stuck in that idea. And I started collecting journals of people who had gone through similar experiences, you know, had gone mad or meditated to death. And, 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 and I started collecting this and this became a, a whole track of my research that ended up as the book, The Enlightenment Trap, which, you know, is right here behind me. Brand new cover. Very nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's about, you know, 
this weird thing where where the Western expectations meet Eastern religions, and there's a miscommunication that honestly goes back th- like hundreds of years between East and West and thousands of years in the Indian mm-hmm. subcontinent. And we're all wrapped up in it. And like our spirituality, our view of the, of, of Eastern spirituality in general is, has this, these lenses over it of history that, that it's very difficult for us to escape and, 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 and we can get seduced by our own um, expectations of what we're going to find. Thank you for sharing that story and for, yeah, for, for I, I can only, I can't even imagine the emotion that might come up sharing a story like that, even after so long. Like when I, I even, as I asked the question, I thought, wow, this is quite a big one to dive into. So thank you for being so willing to just go there and, and share this with us. I, you've really, the, the enlightenment piece to me is such an amazing thing to talk about. It's so important because I think that, so I'm going to just give you a bit of context of my story and just see what, what comes up and see what lands. But, sure. but basically, one of the things I've really fallen in love with in the last few years is the hero's journey. And I, I think it's such yes. a beautiful mm-hmm. contextualization mm-hmm. of experience. And, you know, there's the lifetime mm-hmm. of, a, of someone's hero's journey of, of growing, getting information, getting allies, meeting challenges. And, and then mm-hmm. there's the daily mm-hmm. challenge of like, I just woke up. What, what now? I could just yeah. do my ordinary normal thing or I could change. I could do something. I could do something that's going to take me on a journey. And what came up for me while you were talking there was that there's this piece in the hero's journey that is once the the hero has defeated the big monster, which is like down in the underworld, you know, it's around like seven o'clock or something on a clock in terms of the, the circular uh, yeah, yeah. structure of the journey. And then there is the return. And the, I think there's even the refusal of the return. And I think that that's such mm-hmm. an interesting piece because the, the one of the primary elements of the hero's journey is that the hero returns home with the knowledge to serve others with the what, what or the knowledge or the treasure or the whatever they won, whatever yeah. they got through mm-hmm. defeating the monster. And when I hear that story, I hear Emily having in some kind of a hero's journey and and it, d- sort of defeating the monster that whatever that was for her in that moment, and being like, I don't want to go home. I, I don't ever want to go home. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I just, mm-hmm. just there's something in that. I don't know if that brings anything up for you, but yeah, that's really profound. No, that's very, that's, that's deep. And, you know, and, and obviously you're talking about Joseph Campbell's work um, right. here. And I haven't read Campbell in quite some time. So, so some of this is going to be rusty in my, in my head, but uh, I think you're right. Is that, is that, you know, there, if you're, it's going to be a journey, you have to come back to some place. And what I fear about enlightenment, right. And the way we talk and we think about enlightenment especially in the West, but occasionally in the East as well, is that it is a destination that you arrive at, right? In some way, you, you, you're, go, you're doing your practices, you know, you, you, you're reading the yoga sutras and you see these siddhis, which are like sort of miracle powers you might get. And, you, and, and they tell you, you just work really hard, you can get these things. And, and you say, okay, I'm going to do this. And eventually I'll have a series of realizations and then boom, I will no longer be me because I always realize that there is no me and I am emptiness and I am basically Neo in the matrix, right? You know, that's <laughs> sort of like what enlightenment, how, how we'll contextualize it. And I, my feeling is that this is the wrong characterization of enlightenment. And there is a debate in the Indic and the Tibetan traditions on this, but we, we don't need to get into medieval the- theology at the moment. But <laughs> the things that speak to me is not that somebody arrives, but it's actually a journey that we're always working on, right? Mm-hmm. It's a thing that there is no one who was enlightened, right? I don't even think the Buddha was enlightened. I don't, you know, I, I don't think Jesus was a perfect person. I don't think a, 
Uh, Muhammad was a perfect person. I think that the, all these people had great insights and they were working on themselves and they fucked up and they did great things. And, and, and it is that journey that we all need to be on. And, and there's a, this, this, there's this, thing that I picked out of the enlightenment that uh, while I was doing my research on the enlightenment trap, which was really, really relevant to this. You know, I just said that Buddha was not a perfect person. People say that he was a perfect person all the time. They mm. say he's enlightened. In fact, there's entire theologies based on the fact that he arrived at some point, but there is also in the very early Pali texts. So yeah, and there, there is a, a story of this guy named Mughalandika. And you should look this up. It's really, it's not very well talked about, but it's like some of the oldest Buddhist stories. And what it is, is the Buddha made a big error when he was teaching Buddhism. So mm. he had just gotten enlightened. He's got, you know, sat under the Bodhi tree, made it to the, 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 the spot of, you know, transcendence. And it was starting collecting followers. And he went to some, some followers and said, hey, you know what? The way you get enlightened like me is you have to realize death. You have to realize that death, life is impermanent and you should go meditate in the graveyards. Watch those decaying corpses decay. And then you realize that you're going to decay. And then boom, you're going to be enlightened. That's more or less what he, he taught. And they said, and then peace out. I'll see you later. I am going to go and meditate in this cave for a couple months. I'll be back and then you'll all be enlightened. So that's what he does. And, <laughs> and the monks start doing this and they are, and the way that, 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 that sutra that discusses this, the, these events, it says, oh my God, we are meditating these charnel grounds, which are open graveyards. And we're seeing these bodies decay and we are overcome with disgust of our own decay and we're depressed and they all start committing suicide. Like all of his flock <laughs> in that monastery starts committing suicide. And eventually some of them can't go through with the suicide thing. So they, they, they tell Migalandika, which is a, a, one of the monks to go kill all of the monks in the monastery who want to die. So he goes around and he assassinates all the monks and, and, you know, it's a bloodbath. We're talking hundreds <laughs> of monks. And then the Buddha comes out of retreat and says, Oh my God, there was a pedagogical problem here. We made an error. And Migalandika, I excommunicate you. You're no longer, you know, my student. And he kicks him out of the thing. And then he says, okay, everyone, let's, let's, let's try a different meditation. I want you to instead meditate on your breathing, focus on the breath going in and out, and this will guide you to enlightenment. And that's how we get the breathing meditations by the Buddha. It starts with the death meditation. And then he's like, oops. <laughs> a little too intense. Let's go to breathing. And, you know, this is in the Pali Canon. Uh, it's a, when monks take vows, it's part of the, that, that sort of like uh, initiation practice and uh, Migalandika, you can go find it. Uh, I, 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 I reference the story in the enlightenment trap, but it's also in a book called, uh, um, charming cadavers by uh, Liz something or other. <laughs> it is they, there. It is in the medieval <laughs> literature. So we know that this stuff happens, right? That there are bad ways to meditate. And even the Buddha knew it. And to get back to my point, even the Buddha could be wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Even, even in the very earliest text, the Buddha could be wrong. So this is actually one of the reasons that in the intro to this podcast, I, I always say that, who is this podcast for? You asked that before we started recording, but like uh, this podcast is for down to earth seekers and free people. And the down to earth part is so critical to me because I have had this discomfort. And I'll, again, I'll contextualize a bit where 
living in London some years ago and I got involved in a beautiful community that kind of the new age community, veganism and, uh, and pa sober parties sure. and the yoga, the, all the wonderful things. And what I noticed started happening as someone who's always felt like an outsider, I've never been in the in crowd or it's always never really felt like that. And then I was in this kind of in crowd. And what I noticed was the language was around resonance and vibration and like, well, we're just vibrating at a higher frequency than, than them, you know, or sure. we're just yeah, yeah. whatever the story yeah. is. And I noticed, I was like, this is to me as someone who has always felt like an outsider and is sensitive to those kind of things. Like this just sounds like another dogma and another way to create yes. the VIPs and the cool enlightened people and the mm -hmm. outsiders who aren't as cool and don't really get it. And so to me, that yeah. like part of what I see as a trap of enlightenment, having not yet read your book, though I'm excited to, is this idea of, well, we're the high vibration people and we just need a, like, what's it? A love and light only, love and light all the way. And, mm -hmm. uh, and how much of a mm -hmm. trap that becomes. And, but then what you've just shared around the story is the, the converse can also be true, is like just focusing on death and decay is, is a recipe for disaster. Yeah, it's almost like we need a middle way. Someone should come up with that idea. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us, what is the middle way? Oh, wise one. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, is that we're all on this journey together and we're all trying to figure it out. And people make mistakes. I make mistakes. You make mistakes. Everyone makes mistakes. No one's perfect. No one has the knowledge. And that's the beauty of being alive, honestly. If we actually knew how to live, right? And there are people, there are religions that believe they know how to live. There are seven rules. Sorry about that phone ringing. You know, that, <laughs> yeah, no worries. I, I mean, there's like 10 commandments that you have to follow. If you follow these, you're right. Like, you know, and, and this is like a problem with fundamentalism, right? They have a book and they say, in this book, this is the way to live. And it always goes wrong. Right. Like, yeah. What <laughs> fundamentalist religion has been like, oh, yeah, those guys really figured it out. Like it, they, they just, you know, one thing or another goes wrong because the point of being alive is to figure all of these things out. The point of, of life is to be like, look, I want to be a good person. And, and I, I do hope I do have this principle that I think we should try to be good people, right? Mm -hmm. If you, there are also religions that believe, no, we should be freaking evil. I want to tear out this person's heart and throw it down the bottom of a pyramid to get Jaguar power. That's a real religion. That's not what I think is the way we should live. I think that we <laughs> should try to be good people, try to, try to bring people up together and, and, you know, hold truth to power when it's important, but also let things go when it's not. And yeah, we'll 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 never we'll never figure it out. And I like mm. the fact and some of my heroes are very flawed people, right? People who I'm like, "Oh my god, you're broken in so many ways, and yet there is something <laughs> very special about you." And I like being able to live in a gray area between, you know, on the internet everyone's right or everyone's wrong, right? There's like you, you know, you go onto a Reddit or a Twitter thread and we're and we're always looking for like that one signal that someone transmits to us that means they're wrong about everything or they're right about everything. <laughs> the truth is that no one is right about everything and no one is wrong about everything. Like even, and I, 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 I cringe that I have to get, I'm going to give this example, but like someone like Stalin, right? Horrible person, but there's no mm. way he was wrong about everything, right? He, he probably was right about some like agricultural process that, that helped his people, right? And you, you can't just throw everything out. You have to look at context. You have to look at, how things are, are working in a particular moment and just don't cast everything out at once. 
this actually segues into something I'm interested in exploring if it's available. And obviously, if not, you let me know. But it's this idea of cancel culture. And this, I, I think mm -hmm. cancel culture is one of the sort of children or one of, yeah, one of the children of the modern social media age where everyone's either all right or all wrong. And it's like, we just have to, we have to control the narrative. We have to control the story yeah. so that, so that our story is the one that everyone sees as the true story and the, the one story. And so I know that you're going through something right now that is pretty full on intense <laughs> and I'm, yeah. I'm interested to hear about it, obviously, because it's a, it's an interesting story. So I'll just, again, for the listener contextualize, like you are one of the people who first worked with Wim Hof before anything had really, before the world knew about him, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, for mm -hmm. myself, I've found that his, his example around resilience and around getting uncomfortable, as he said, actually talking about death, I'm sure I've heard him say, you need to die like once a day to really come alive. And, mm -hmm. and he's talking about ice baths and cold immersion at that point. And so mm -hmm. I just rediscovered you recently, as I expressed before, looking into more of that kind of stuff, because I'm just like, ice baths are, are really changing my life, like in a very deeply profound yeah. way. And, and sure. they're helping the people I bring them to. And it's just, it's epic. And mm -hmm. then what I'm seeing is, listening to you, that there's this difference, this disparity between Wim Hof as a man, as, a, as just another human doing the best he can with his broken, beautiful mm -hmm. humanness and the business of the Wim Hof uh, yeah. sort of image and the business that's yeah. out there and what they're projecting. And you're kind of in hot water right now. Excuse the hot water. <laughs> I suppose, oh God, anyway. So I just love to, <laughs> to hear from you around what it's like to be in the midst of kind of being canceled, dude. Yeah. Like they're trying to cancel you right yeah. now. Yeah, it's unfortunate. So, you know, for a little background, I was the first writer to, to Amer like first serious writer to write about Wim Hof in a, a like, you know, for a real magazine doing about real, about his techniques, about what the science behind it. And certainly in America, uh, I got him sort of started in the States. And it was an article for Playboy that I, I went to visit him in 2013, right as I was writing the, the first draft of the Enlightenment Trap, actually. Oh, wow. So I was no out there castigating false gurus. And, and, and I'm, it's not just Emily's story. It's another, it's another sort of the controversial llama who's a big character in that. And I was sure that Wim Hof, this dude who sits on an iceberg and gets, <laughs> you know, claims he can control his body with his mind and stuff, was just another one of these charlatans. So I went out there to prove him wrong. And it turns out I could, like, I, 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 I tried his method and it worked. Like in a, in a week, I was sitting on my under, in my underwear on an iceberg and I was climbing up mountains in my skivvies and controlling the heat with my body. I was like, whoa, this is a big deal. Maybe, you know, I need to like modify the way I think about a lot of these things. And so I ended up writing an article that would very much supported everything Wim Hof. Uh, and like, especially technique wise, like there's something here that's really cool and let, let, let the world find out about it. Cause it, and it changed my life. I am like a professional ice bather now. Like I wrote this book called, uh, what doesn't kill us about my journey with Wim. I ended up climbing Mount Kilimanjaro with him in my, in a bathing suit. Uh, it was negative 30 degrees outside. That's the same for Fahrenheit and Celsius. So, you know, Fuck. there it is. And, and I found these like powers in me and, and they're evolutionary, right? They, they come from, you know, it's not prana coming from heaven. It's like, you know, we evolved, for extreme environments and we're just too comfortable now. And I go delve really deep into the science of that. And, you know, the, the, I'm, I am on the record with you right now that I love what I learned with Wim. 
And Wim changed my life. And I think he's a really, really interesting and wonderful and complex person. And as I said, like, I, I, I see the gray area more than I see black and white. And I see him as this sort of what I say, a prophet and a madman, like a guy who's mm-hmm. like opens the door for ice bathing for millions of people. Now ice bathing is like mainstream. There's all these different versions of it. And I love it. I just love that. It's like all over the place, but he, at least for me and for a lot of the world right now, opened the door, even though he was not the first ice bather, like this tradition goes mm-hmm. back, like way back. And so that was that the book, the book comes out, but I've always in the back of my mind, my mission was like, I'm, a, I still debunk cults. Like I have to be like legitimate. I have to be honest. I, ha- I have to look at the bigger, broader context. And I have n- never been comfortable with the business method that has arisen around Wim Hof and, 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 you know, Wim has tr- ha- extracted himself from the business and it's run by his son, Anam Hof. And there's a long history here. You know, there's some videos that may or may not be out, whether or not they're taken down. But I've ended up in this fight with Anam Hoff because I released a video say, critiquing some real problems with the method, uh, with the, the, the way the method is distributed in the world. And uh, it has been very controversial and uh, especially within the Wim Hof empire. And at first Wim Hof was very, very much in my corner. And I have these videos of his like reactions to it being like, wow, this is like really changing something that's important in, in the, in, in this group to, you know, as of today, and we'll see what he says tomorrow today, he's really not happy with me because I have caused a stir that is potentially hurting the money of the Wim Hof empire, because the way it is run, you know, from what I have seen, it's like, like, it really is a money-making operation where, you know, somebody like, if you wanted to ask Wim Hof to come on your podcast and you wrote Wim a message, it would be like, hell yeah, I want to do it. I want to spread the word, which is like, great. That's why we're into this. Mm-hmm. And then if Anum gets wind of that, you're going to get this inter, like you're going to be blocked on Wim's, 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 Wim, he's going to get in front uh, and be like, mm-hmm. no, it's going to cost you $50,000 for for a half hour or a hundred thousand, 150,000, if you don't pay attention in there. And there's like these threats and there's a community of instructors who, as they get more famous, like more well-known for ice bathing and breath work and stuff, they uh, have their careers sort of cut out from under them. And you know, you, they get mm-hmm. legal challenges. They get takedown requests on YouTube videos they put out. And a lot of people are very traumatized and very scared to come out and speak about this stuff. And then I, being the bonehead that I am, I put this video out and then all of that stuff is now being targeted at me and my videos are being taken down. My channel is being, you know, hit with like copyright strikes that aren't, I do not believe are fair privacy kind of things and there's lawyers and it's, it's a, it's a big mess. Honestly, it's a big mess right now. There's something in this that's so important. I, I, the, the word, I looked this up a while ago, but don't quote me on this because I don't remember exactly. But the word cult, I looked it up because I was like, well, everyone talks about cults sure. and it's, it's always negative, right? And, and from my memory, and again, don't quote me, I'm going to look this up and at least put it in the show notes if I get it horribly wrong. But I believe the root of the word cult is the word cultus, which means something like belonging or being a part of something or being in community. Sure. Yeah. And so... Mm-hmm. We've got this thing again in the West of like, ooh, I don't want to be a part of a cult. But in a way, by definition, we are all part of cults. We are all part of cultus, of community, of culture, which is the Mm -hmm. same root word, Mm -hmm. culture and and cult. And so it's more about how do we 
build systems and ways of being and communication styles that enable us to self-regulate when we start getting into yeah. that kind of cult where there's like someone in control or there's yeah. a pyramid and you got to climb the pyramid and and then you know there's that mm -hmm. whole thing so i don't know if you have any thoughts on that but it's something i think about quite a lot is like how do how do i live in a good cult <laughs> basically yeah i mean that you you that's a really nice way to phrase it you know the, the origins of the word cult and and the culture right like the 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 in group is the cult and the cult of mary which is not all that controversial but that, but in the modern context we think about jonestown um right. we think about um manson murders we think about these very very negative images of cult and it has this pejorative overtone that i don't think that we should ignore because mm. those events happened and they are dangerous and and I am careful around the word cult right now because I want to make that distinction between these mm. two, these two, when a group goes dangerous and when it's like the cult of Mac users. Okay. You know, it, <laughs> I, I see them as sort of like they're, it's becoming sort of two different things. And I, and generally the way I think of cults, they're organized around a charismatic leader. In, in general, they're organized around controlling the actions of the followers and, and often have an ideology that explains everything, right? Where, where they get contradictions from the outside world. And they're like, well, that doesn't make sense because the world is all an illusion and you are an illusion. Therefore, my leader is correct. And like, there's various iterations of how that works. And I find this type of cult, which exists in Christian context, Buddhist context, Islamic context, like all the contexts, there are cults like that. I do not think that the Wim Hof method is a cult in that uh, in that way, because Wim doesn't think of himself as that sort of guru. Mm -hmm. But I do think that there are methods of control where people get silenced, people get kicked out of the of the community, people get ostracized, which resemble some of the organizations that I've written about uh, and, and, and are coercive and are negative in various ways. And maybe we can see like a like a, there's a continuum of cult as in the culture of Americans and all the way to <laughs> Jonestown where everyone commits suicide because, or, or, you know, a comet comes by and everyone puts on Nike sneakers and kills themselves. Like, you know, the, there, there's a, there's a, obviously a big spectrum there. And, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's useful to make some distinctions between that. And I think that, you know, what was happening and the, one of the reasons why I did this video that was, has been so controversial. It's like, I was, I was planning to re-release my book, The Enlightenment Trap, which is about the stuff that I just talked about. And I was actually, when you write a book, originally I wrote this in 2015, it came out under a different title. There's a long story there, but essentially I got the rights back. I was going to re-release it. And I hadn't read it in seven years, you know, cause that's what happens when you write a book. You just don't read it and you sort of forget stuff and you go on to other projects. And I was reading it for the audiobook, and I was sitting there and I was like, you know, just going over these chapters, I was like, oh my God, like some of this stuff is really applicable to what's going on right now. And, and I was sort of in this crisis of conscience and I, and I did two things. One thing I did a video cause it was coming on the 10 year anniversary of when I had been started practicing the method. So I did this video about what, you know, what 10 years of the Wim Hof method was, and it was all very positive about the Wim Hof method. But then at the end, I, I said a couple things that were a little negative. I was like, I don't like the business practices. And Anum Hoff is not the nicest person. Okay. I basically, I called him mean. <laughs> and and I, don't, I, think that, I think that's fair. I think calling him mean is fair. And, and then I got this note from him being like, 
I can't believe you would say this about me. And like, you know, the long sort of like, you're a bad journalist, you know, you're a horrible person, blah, blah, blah. And, and I was like, whoa, like that's a outsized reaction. And so then me being me and maybe just a little reactive myself, I was like, well, I'll show you what a good journalist I am and I'll, I'll actually dig in. Like you, you say that I, and, and then I dug in and I started interviewing all like other instructors and, and I did a dive into the legal paperwork. And I found out that Wim Hof, the guy, the human doesn't even, does not, at least on, on the, the, the paper trail from the, the corporate registration and whatnot, doesn't even own a stake in his own name, um, at least officially, according to the, the Dutch Chamber of Commerce. And I sort of demonstrated that. I demonstrated all of these instructors who are scared to speak out. And, you know, I put together like a, a legitimate investigative report. And, mm. oh, man, that just caused a scene. And, and uh, you know, Anum then, you know, I talk about him like threatening to sue people and taking down their videos. And then he does exactly that to me in various ways. And... It is, yeah, you know, you can say I'm being canceled. Like uh, something is going on that's bad, and yeah. uh, and I don't think it's productive for the method. And and I've been try, I've been tried to be very careful not to throw Wim Hof under the bus, right? Because in my mind, there's a distinction between the teachings of the of that guy and how the business has grown up around it. Because Wim, you know, according to his own statements that I've, you know, that are actually currently online, he is saying I uh, that that he doesn't want any part of the business. Like he wants to be like. Gandhi, like, you know, going on a salt march. And then when you talk to Gandhi's handlers, they're like, you have no idea how hard it is to keep Gandhi, how expensive it is to keep Gandhi in robes, right? right. That's, a, that's a quote for, of, the, of Gandhi. And I think it's the same way. Wim doesn't want to be involved in the business. So he sort of ceded the control to his son. And, and the son who doesn't practice ice bath by his own admission, doesn't practice the method, mm. is using it to raise money and being mean uh, as he does it this is so important man because i think you said earlier i don't remember the exact words but like calling out speaking out to truth speaking out truth and i, I think mm -hmm. that this is like one of the most critical foundational things is dialogue and being able to go back and forth and what i hear it's that same piece and and i'm so glad you made the distinction between like a cult where people get together and, and do horrific things and this idea mm -hmm. of you know th th that there's a lot of um variation within that yeah yeah exactly so so there's this piece in here around and the word that comes up for me and this is my word i'm not saying it's your word at all but what i hear when i hear that is bully and and every but i was bullied a lot when i was at school and as so many of mm -hmm. us were i'm not unique in that but what i what i came to realize about the bullies because i am the kind of person who's introspective and i thought a lot about it what i realized was that they themselves were very unstable in themselves, that they were very yes. actually weak mm -hmm. in themselves, that they didn't have, mm -hmm. and the word I'm going to use here is intentionally is resilience, that they weren't resilient. And I didn't have that word until relatively recently, but that the structure mm -hmm. of their identity through probably abuse from their parents or lack of attention or whatever the thing was that mm -hmm. they were going through mm -hmm. meant that they were not yeah. resilient. And so they had to lash out to try and control the mm -hmm. external reality. And that's what I'm hearing in the story that you're sharing right now. I mean, you're exactly right. You know, I, even though I am in a major conflict with Anam Hoff somehow, uh, I actually have a lot of sympathy for how he got to where he is. He had a very difficult childhood where he, you know, Wim left him, more, Wim more or less left his, all of his children after his wife died and, and lived with another woman and his kids, as I understand it, lived basically in a, in a squat in Amsterdam uh, for 10 years. Anam was responsible for 
for bringing the family up. And I, I don't, he was in his teens when that happened. And that is just horribly difficult. And Wim is not, a, you know, in my opinion, a great father, right? Like I think that he, he has some major failings in there. And this is again, where that gray area comes in for me. I can say, look, this was not good. And yet yeah. he still is, does some cool stuff with the ice. Like, you know, we can hold those two ideas up and say they both exist. And Anum, you know, growing up, managing his family, obviously wants to control external circumstances because everything is so difficult. And, you know, his personality is now very externalized. And it, it, the thing that's so strange is that now he runs this big organization, you know, that makes millions of dollars and it's built around the idea of resilience, right? It's built around <laughs> the idea of, 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 of going into like ice water, confronting your external troubles and then changing the inside. And yet he professes re repeatedly that he doesn't practice the method. I mean, it, there's this cognitive di dissonance and I would hope that, you know, honestly, I think this maybe, maybe this problem would be less significant if he did practice what he's mm. selling. Uh, but maybe an ice bath is not enough too. like, you know, <laughs> maybe you need some more, um, more help. But I do have a lot of sympathy for where he comes from. But that doesn't mean just because somebody has a history, because we all have history, doesn't mean actions in the present are excusable. Yeah. And and that's where we come into this this situation where it, again it's not just me. Even though I'm the most public face of this, so many people have these stories and they share them with me all the time. I've gotten hundreds of messages from instructors and other people who have been turned off by the, sort of the business practices of this method. Mm. But I'm one of the only people who's public about it because no one wants to be bullied. Right. No one wants to build it. And, and my career has been standing up to bullies. Like I go and interview. I'm the guy who walks into an organ trafficker who's noted for selling hundreds of human kidneys. I'm like, why are you selling kidneys? Like I put the microphone in their face. You know, I go to the mob boss in Bangalore and, you know, for Wired magazine. I'm surrounded by guys with guns. And I'm like, why did you kill those guys? Like, this is what I do. And so it's not shocking that that I have ended up in this particularly weird situation. But the funny thing is. <laughs> When I've interviewed the actual criminals, and I don't think Anum is a criminal, I just think there's some problems. But when I've mm. interviewed actual criminals, even murderers, no one has given me as much backlash as I have had with, <laughs> with this inner fire. So it's really funny. It's a weird moment. <laughs> that is a weird moment. I Okay, well, let's say, segue and move into this idea of resilience, because this is such a critical piece to me. Sure. And, and again, I'll, I'll just contextualize a little for myself that... So I'm a, a personal and inner life skills coach and I, and I technically a life coach is part of what I do. I, I, for some reason, I really don't like that term because I think it can be so abused and misused. And, sure. But, but yeah, the reality yeah. is that through my journey, I've gained the skills and the capacities to sit in, in very uncomfortable spaces with people and be a mirror for them so that they can right. unfold and blossom and, and right. to rediscover themselves. And the, mm -hmm. the, one of the big things that I have noticed, which is kind of what we're talking about right now, is that if I am not doing my ice baths and my breath work and my personal self mm -hmm. inner coaching, if mm -hmm. I'm not showing up for my early mm -hmm. mornings and my the, the mm -hmm. things that are like inner regenerative and resilience building, I lose it so quickly on the external world. Yep. I lose that capacity oh, to really authentically show up. So I, I would just mm -hmm. love to hear your thoughts on, on what resiliency really is and, and why does it matter? Uh, for, for an individual and for everyone, actually. Yeah. 
So when I speak about this concept, it's it's what I call the wedge, right? And there's a book Mm -hmm. I wrote about the wedge after What Doesn't Kill Us, which is resilience is interceding between your natural reactions to stress and how you want to respond. It's that ability Mm -hmm. to say, to just create space. And that when you create that space, you change your physiology. And I think that's really where the wedge gets a little bit more interesting than just take a deep breath. It's like your body, your, your sympathetic nervous system, which is your adrenal glands and cortisol and things like that, your fight or flight responses get triggered very quickly because we, you know, that's was important to survive. But in the modern world, we don't necessarily need to go into fight or flight all the time because we're not, you know, running from lions on the savanna and whatnot. And the reason why we as humans are conscious at all, like what is the reason for consciousness? It's because your body's got these pre-programmed things that it does, but has no idea how to navigate a world that is uncertain, right? It has no idea, like it's not prepared for 401ks or automobiles or airplanes or, you know, the million things that we might get involved with as as humans, or even navigating a new um, jungle, jungle to desert. Like, so the reason why we have consciousness is to sense the world so the, the information is coming in as data and the body has like, this is what I do with this data. Here's the pre-programmed instinct. Then there's the consciousness that says, oh, actually, you know, we don't have to worry about that. It's fine, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's going to be all right. And you're able to insert yourself. And I, and, I, and I think that sensation is emotion. Like there's a sensation equals emotion, emotion equals sensation. And I think that's a really important concept because because we feel things like emotions are gists about how we should react in the world. Right. It's, it's, it's like, it's, it's actually a heuristic to define how we intercede with people. So if you know somebody you don't like, like you haven't have had bad interactions with them before you see them and you feel that emotion, like, Oh, I don't want to be here. It's not because you're thinking of the data of this person said this, that time, this, that, that time, that time, you're not like a, a logic Vulcan, right? You are saying, Oh, I just don't feel right about this. Right. Mm-hmm. And that feeling is a way to navigate the world. Your consciousness can change that. You can say, Oh, actually, no, that maybe this person's legit. And, and you can think about, it. but this is that conversation that's going on. The super interesting thing on top of that is that those changes mentally alter the secretions of your hormones, your metabolism, like they alter, like it's literally mind over matter. Consciousness is mind over matter. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the reason why ice baths are so great and breath work is so great is because it puts you in a situation that breath works a little more complex, um, but let's just talk about the ice bath. It puts you in a situation where your nervous system says death. I am going to die. <laughs> and, and, you know, and we're just programmed that way. It is, it is the worst. You sit in the ice bath and you want to shiver. It's all your fight or flight response. If you just go uncontrolled and just let your body do what it wants, it's like, oh, right. And you're going to die. Exactly. And then you realize, oh, it's okay. Oh, I can relax in this. Like you realize that there's actually good things and that, that natural reaction is not the, the way that you need to push forward. And then you relax And when you relax, you change your body. You change, you're no longer secreting adrenaline and cortisol. Now you're you're, you're doing these rest and digest things and you're doing that in the environment of death. You're changing your entire perspective in the world. And I totally agree with you. I am pretty good about my practice. I'm pretty good about keeping up breath work, pretty good about keeping up ice baths and stuff. But sometimes, and, and it's usually when I'm really stressed, 
I don't do it. <laughs> and, and then it just makes the day so much worse. And, and I'm not going to say that ice baths change everything because there's still an element of you, but it, it sets the bar at a place where it's easier to interact with the world. Mm. I mean, okay, so this might sound like a segue, but it's a question that just keeps coming up in this conversation for me. And that is, what do you think about infinity? Oh, whoa. Okay. Can, can you contextualize? <laughs> infinity is a big concept. You might know. Sure. <laughs> Where are you going with that? <laughs> okay, good. Beautiful. So, so basically, when I hear you talk about consciousness, and when I hear you talk about enlightenment and the enlightenment trap, and the idea that there's nowhere actually to get to because we're just here mm -hmm. having this experience, and then I mm -hmm. think about the fact that, like, I remember so clearly when I was a kid, I was always like, "What happened at the beginning, or what happened before the beginning?" Yeah. And everyone had these like clear right. explanations, and I'm like, "But what's out? What's the end of the universe?" They're like, "No, it's forever." I'm like, "But." forever where like yeah. what do you mean forever yeah. and and so and yeah, then yeah. since as an adult a big part of my healing has been through plant medicines through psychedelic medicines um i mean yes. i think that, mm -hmm. that that in combination with the morning practice mm -hmm. with the inner resiliency practices mm -hmm. has saved my life i, I really do 100 mm -hmm. believe that and in those psychedelic experiences and even in sometimes in a deep breathwork journey there is a sense of the finite dissolving into the infinite and yes. and so so when I come back, I'm sitting here right now and I'm like, I'm Nathan and then everything forever. What the fuck? Yes. Uh, so, I mean, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're, so this is a, you know, a wonderful um, sentiment that you're expressing. And I, uh, to paraphrase Carl Sagan, the, the late great cosmologist to bake, if you want the recipe to bake an apple pie, you must begin at the beginning of the universe. Okay, because ultimately <laughs> everything led back. There's one event after another, all the way back to the very, very beginning. And, you know, in the wedge, I talk about this concept of consciousness a lot. And I think that we got consciousness, consciousness wrong. I think that we think that we are, I am Scott and you are Nathan and that we are different people. But I really don't think that's what consciousness is. I think consciousness is, uh, and we can look at neurosciences. I could talk about split brain experiments, but let's go a different direction and say, at one point in the universe, way, 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 way back, every piece of matter from all of the, the Andromeda cluster, the, the, uh, the Haleakala, like uh, everything on earth, every atom on earth, every atom in the sun, everything, everything, everywhere, all at once was infinitesimally small, smaller than a grain of sand. Everything was squinched into this this point called the singularity. Every atom in you was literally, actually there were no atoms. <laughs> everything that would one day become the atoms in your body was literally everything in the universe. Okay. And now we talk about quantum entanglement. Now we talk about, you know, now we know that particles can, can be attached to each other without regardless to space and without regard to the speed of light. <laughs> That that and that you switch one electron over here, and that electron over there might move. Now, there's a lot of entanglement that I don't honestly get at a physics level, and so, you know, and probably no one does <laughs> at a, like a really fundamental level. But if this, these things are possible, then you literally, from a physical perspective, are and were the universe. And when I think of consciousness. Some people would say that consciousness arises out of the body. It's all material. 
Personally, I don't think that. I think consciousness is a is a thing that exists in the world, ir- irrespective of our bodies. And I think we arise out of that's it's sort of the it's this theory of panpsychism, where I sort of come out of to some degree, where you know me, the way I talk, the way I think, the way I, I, I do things. I don't exist in a vacuum. I exist because I've had interactions with other people. You exist because you have interactions with other people. When I say things with my mouth over here in Denver, you're in South Africa, through the wires of this, I am literally in your brain right now changing your neurons, whether you like it or not. You, <laughs> podcast listener, I am changing your brain right now, whether you like it or not. That's freaking magic, okay? <laughs> Oh man, that is so nuts. So you've just, you've done the thing that I do sometimes where I, I think to myself, like I'm having an experience and then I think, okay, so how does this experience happens? It happens because there's like the caravan or the trailer around me that I'm sitting in. And then around that is there's the earth and there's the air and then the trees and then, and, and it all goes. And the only reason this is happening is because everything is happening at the end of the day. Yeah. Fuck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think that that consciousness has a really interesting function. We're going way off the, the beaten path. This has nothing to do with my books. I think I've done some YouTube videos about this that still should be online. But like, here's what I think. You know, we have the. Have you heard? We're, we're, can I go there? Can I go out? Oh, a little please, further? please, let's Onto go. My I'm so, I'm okay. so in. <laughs> okay, so there is this idea of the many worlds hypothesis, right? Where every action that has that could possibly have existed does exist in a multiverse, right? This is a a physics problem that some people, some physicists really believe exists. So like anytime an atom could go left or right, a new entire universe somehow exists. And either it's a completely new material universe, like a completely new universe, like with all the matter, or it's like a different state of the universe that could exist on a time dimension. Okay. So there's a couple of theories for how that works. Now, I think the many worlds hypothesis is not true. I think that that it that it it, it 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 I think it breaks logic in a way that I mean honestly physics breaks a lot of logic so I could be wrong <laughs> but I think it breaks breaks logic in a lot of ways and the and, but I think what resolves it is consciousness and I think what consciousness is is could this atom go left could this atom go right could you know does Nathan call me on 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 Zoom or does he call me on Zencaster right these are decisions <laughs> right and each one should bake a whole new universe but I think what happens is consciousness is the thing that makes the indefinite definite, okay, is that things could have gone left or right, but consciousness somehow interceded. Not necessarily Nathan's consciousness, but like big consciousness, mm-hmm. like that singularity consciousness that I'm talking about. Things could go left or right, and and this conscious force, whatever it might be, made the indefinite definite. And it's sort of like a zipper on a sweatshirt, right? When the zipper's at the bottom, of the of the sweatshirt, you have infinite timelines that are ahead of you. Like it go all sorts of different directions. And as you zip it up just a little bit, the the band narrows to what is possible until finally we get to what is, and that is now. And I think that is the process of consciousness. I don't know how you prove that physically. It, this might just be a zany belief of a of a quasi spiritual investigative journalist. I don't know. <laughs> That's where I am, and I'm on the record. <laughs> Beautiful. I love that. Thank you so much for that.
I love a good image and that image of the zipper just really did it for me. I appreciate that. So, so we're coming towards the end of, of the kind of, uh, the big conversation that's going to be out there in the world. And I, I want to just segue back into your book because it, it just, sure. you know, the enlightenment trap, it really uh, resonates with so much of, of me and what I believe. And I think you have touched on this throughout this conversation, but I really want to give you an opportunity to dive into it if it feels resonant. And the question sure. is, is so you're enlightened now what like how does enlightenment as yeah. the idea like how does it mm -hmm. work now what mm -hmm. yeah so it's so i mean someone what do, what does one do when when the uh what does the buddha do when he becomes enlightened he chops wood and carries water that's the that's the the what zen koan right is you're enlightened now what changes nothing changes it should be the same and, and you don't arrive i don't think you can arrive but if you did arrive you shouldn't do anything differently it, if if heaven exists Let's say it's the Christian Catholic heaven by that Pope Francis believes in. Let's say that is the ultimate reality and that is correct. And, you know, what do you do on life now? Well, do you become a fundamentalist and just like sit down and believe everything that, that, that Pope Francis says, even though you're not, I'm saying it's correct, but you still only have your human knowledge. No, you don't necessarily, that's not what you do. Let's say it was correct. You've been living your life the way you've been living it. You should be a good person and you should do the best you can in life, period. Like that should be it. You should try, you should follow the golden rule, do unto others as others would do unto you. And you should be a good person. And if there is a just God, then it's great. Then you should go to heaven because it's ultimately not Pope Francis's um, heaven. I could be wrong. Maybe it's that Jaguar heart taking out religion where you want to become <laughs> eat the hearts and become a jaguar in which case we all messed up every single one of us messed up and it's irrelevant because we're not going to go to jaguar heaven because we haven't been eating hearts you know I, I and if that is the, the the true nature of reality then i reject it i reject yeah. jaguar heart religion i i want to try to be a good person and if i only have this limited amount of time in life i should use it to the best of my abilities Cool. The, 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 the cult of Scott has, be, has got its first convert. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. Well, oh, here's another thing about cults that I think is actually really useful is that mm. when someone declares themselves as enlightened, okay, there is a problem that, that we can see right across the board is that they believe they understand the ultimate reality, which means that they are the only authority in the world and that they no longer have checks and balances on their own consciousness. And you, you've, we've never get a point where a bunch of people say they're enlightened and they all get into a room and they say, oh yeah, no, no, you're right. We're all right. We're, we're totally <laughs> on the same page we found enlightenment. No, they all disagree about the nature of their realizations. This is because there is no enlightenment. And mm. when somebody does become to believe in themselves that they are, at that final point, what happens is the loss of peers and loss of any checks and balances. And we see this in like guru cult leaders all the time where they suddenly accumulate a bunch of followers, you know, and they, you know, and it usually it's some young, if it's a man, it's like a lot of young women around. And then they're like, well, my penis says that I should be having sex with all of you guys. And because they're male and they've got these hormones and then all of a sudden their penis is right. Cause no one's out there to, to, to contradict their penis. And the scrotum looks a little bit like a brain. And all of a sudden you have sex scandals and there's a pattern, like a literally a pattern that you can just trace from one cult to another where this happens over and over and over again. It's because they get isolated. And 
And no one can come up to them and say, no, you're wrong, because they have extracted themselves from peerness. And mm. And this is the this is the trap of gurus around the world is that that when and and I feel bad for them because they they can't go to their number two right you know their 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 chief apostle and be like man I think I might have gotten this wrong can we figure this out <laughs> they can't do that anymore because they're the enlightened one they cannot ask for advice. Hmm. Well, this might be a bit of a weird segue. I, I have so many interesting things. I actually want to chat with you a bit more about, about stories and and actually tell you a story, a very funny story a guy told me of enlightenment. But but I want to kind of bring this to a close for now. And this is might be a strange segue, but the question I always ask guests at the end uh, is, when you hear, we are already free, uh, what mm. does that mean for you? What does that bring up for you? You asked me this at the very beginning of the show, and I've been trying to chew on it. And I tried to come up with a really clever answer. It's like, we're already free and we're already slaves or something like that. But I, I, didn't, I didn't quite manage it. But, you know, it's all okay. You know, there, there's, there's no right way to live a life. And I think that when you accept that there is good and there's bad and that we're all in the gray, then then. It is okay. You know, we, it, it's also, you know, one thing that I like to think about is that, you know, death is a very important meditation. Considering death is a very, and all the traditions have death, memento mori in one way or another in there. I did not come up with this, right? But death is that, the, considering that it is, it's, it's so liberating because if life is like a song, Okay. And let's say it's, there's a melody that's playing and it goes up and there's a joyous part and there's a sad part and it goes through. And as you live your life, it's this song and it's going through different keys. I can promise you that death is in a minor key. Like we know that the end of life is in a minor key. You're, you're losing things, you know, things are, you may be in pain, you know, maybe you're surrounded by your family. Nonetheless, it is a minor key. It's not going to be a good note. And that is inevitable. And when you realize that life is already ends in loss, already ends in like you lost this game. That lets you say, okay, well, now that I know that I've lost, well, how am I going to use my time right now? Because I'm already free. I can't win. I cannot become immortal. I cannot get to, to some new special place. I have to accept that I'm going to die. And that becomes very beautiful because it lets you go easy on yourself. It lets you also it obligates you to take risks in life, right? It, 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 it says, look, I should go out there and I should do something that makes me uncomfortable. I should do something that is, is somewhat dangerous as long as I'm responsible about it. Because at the end of the day, what can I lose that I have that I, it's not guaranteed already to be lost? And that is what I think about when you say we are already free. Thank you so much, Scott. I, I've so enjoyed this conversation and I'm actually excited to, to get into a little more for those supporters of the podcast after this. But just before we, we end this part, where can people find you? Now that the person listening is like, holy shit, this dude is epic. Let me go and buy his book and do all the things. Uh, where would you send that person? Well, in theory, I have a YouTube channel, but maybe not. It could, it could be taken down. <laughs> I have a website called scottcarney.com and that will in theory, still be alive. And I also have a newsletter where I put out things uh, where I can direct people <laughs> to where to go. And you can put a link in your show notes. And it's also on my website. There's like a little pop-up, you know, one of those annoying pop-ups. Uh, it's there. And uh, and I'd love you to subscribe. And all of the books are there. They're very different. I mean, they're 
like they're about enlightenment, they're about organ trafficking, they're about climate change, they're about Sasquatch. I mean, it's like all like I am so weird as a human. <laughs> and hopefully you'll like some of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, brother. It's been a real pleasure to have you on and I'm excited for for some of the things that we're about to chat about. So yeah, just thanks again. I wish you well on the journey and and yeah, thank you for standing up to the bullies. Uh, it means a lot to me Absolutely. personally and I'm sure to those listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again to Scott Carney for a full power conversation. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of the We Are Already Free podcast and resonated with any of the topics discussed, please do check out the show notes for more information at alreadyfree.me forward slash 27. It's just the numbers 27. And hey, how are you doing out there? This was a big one. If you're struggling with any of the challenges we shared in this episode, like chasing enlightenment, never feeling like you're enough, or giving your power away to so-called gurus, please reach out to me. I'm available to chat anytime via the links in the show notes. Also, as a special bonus, patrons have exclusive access to the, to the conversation, the bonus conversation related to this episode where Scott and I continue chatting and we dive into the painful mistakes of spiritual bypassing, diving deeper into how Scott processed the loss of Emily O'Connor and that experience, uh, our shared love of Sandman uh, by Neil Gaiman. If you haven't read that, oh my gosh, I so recommend. What is the role of a bodhisattva? Why you can't have the dark without the light or light without the dark? Why an ice bath is the great equalizer? How an ice bath answers the big consciousness question of how do you know what someone else is experiencing? I really, really loved what he said about that. Uh, and also he shares a very important thing to avoid in the ice bath. And it's probably not what you would expect. So, and we share a few other things. So please do head over to the show notes, become a patron, reach out to me uh, and dive further into the world of Scott and his books and what it is that he's doing in the world. All of that is available at alreadyfree.me slash 2727. I'm your host, Nathan Maingard, and it has been a deep pleasure and an honor to share this time with you. As always, please remember that we are already free. I'll see you next week. 